invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2. We're going to read a portion dealing with the calling of the prophet or the priest Ezekiel here. Beginning at chapter 2, we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 3. This is page 955 in your pew Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 2. Hear now the voice of the Lord through the Holy Scriptures. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, the prophet Ezekiel is first introduced to us in Scripture as living among the exiles in Babylon. And as a priest, as God's covenant mediator, he receives a magnificent vision that is recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter 1. And while we don't have time to unpack that particular vision in all of its detail, the heart and substance of the matter, I believe, is sufficient for our purposes here tonight. The language that Ezekiel uses in this opening chapter invokes that of supernatural wonder. All of the language in chapter 1 is consistent with the glory of God that's referred throughout the Old Testament. 
And that's why if you read chapter 1, you will read of things like fire, of lightning, wings, sparkling stones. He, he goes on about these strange creatures that he sees in this vision. He's trying to, to explain that. All of these things invoke the glory of God. They are all common with the display of who our God is. When God's glory is spoken of in the Scriptures, there's an otherworldliness to it, brothers and sisters. It's beyond our wildest imagination. See, because when God shows up, it's difficult for us to explain it. And see, that awe and that wonder is actually summarized for us in the very last verse of chapter 1. What does it say? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This Old Testament priest, like, like few who had gone before him, experienced the likeness of the glory of the Lord while in exile with God's people. It's a fascinating account. And see, we have to understand that, that Ezekiel experiences this glory for a distinct purpose. This is not just a, a supernatural experience that Ezekiel has to have on his own, like a personal testimony. You know how that is when, when some people share their, their personal testimonies, how God is maybe telling them to do something, maybe to get their life in order, maybe to find peace. See, this is much different. This is a divine commissioning as the prophet of God. And see, when we know that, when we examine this text in light of that reality, that this is an official divine calling of a prophet by God, we can learn something today. I don't think we always stop and consider the manner in which this often took place. You know, the way that God often spoke in the Old Testament is rare. It's bizarre to us. And I think it's okay for us to admit that. It truly was amazing. We know, for instance, other places where the supernatural calling is found. We see that, for instance, with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.4 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, and it goes on, There the prophet received the word of the Lord. We're told nothing more, nothing less, though. You know, how does that take place? Was it an audible voice? Was it a vision? What, what, did an angel of the Lord appear to Jeremiah? We're not sure. Here we are, though. Here in the opening pages of the book of Ezekiel, we're told in stark detail, congregation, the particulars of this prophet's commissioning. And it helps us show, reveal to us how our covenant Lord is at work with his people. We see in our text this evening that God is both sovereign and merciful in the calling of his servant so that he can draw his people back. God is both merciful and sovereign in the calling of his servant so that his covenant people can be brought back to him. And we're going to consider that theme in four unique ways together this evening. We see it first in the immediate response of the priest. In verse 23, in the beginning of our text, what do we read? 
So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. Here is what you might call the prerequisite for men who are called throughout Scripture. For those who are called, there must be first a bringing low. These men must fall on their face. Remember, Abram fell on his face in Genesis 17 when Yahweh appeared to him, when he established his covenant. We know also the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion, when Jesus Christ appeared to him, when he saw that glory, what did he do? He fell on his face. In each and every circumstance where this takes place, the one beholding the glory of God is overwhelmed, isn't he? He's overwhelmed with his own complete inadequacy for what has just happened. Ezekiel, when confronted with this divine glory by that river on that day, fell on his face. Because as a man, even as a priest, he was insufficient for these things. And that's clear throughout the book of Ezekiel, just in the way it's structured, in the language that's used. Perhaps that's why Scripture refers to Ezekiel as what? As the son of man. Maybe that's to emphasize his lowly humanity, to to show the great chasm between the holiness, the glory that he saw in chapter 1, and what he experiences in Babylon. Of course, that is common language in the Psalms, for instance, right? David in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, or as the King James says, that you visit him. That our holy and infinite God, the one who reveals himself to Ezekiel, would come to us is amazing. That he would care so much to send his own son. That is beyond overwhelming. Who can understand these things? Who can grasp them? And see, Ezekiel, apart from the work of the Spirit, he couldn't. And see, neither can we. It's vital to see in our text here tonight. See, if you and I want to experience and behold the glory of God, we need to be brought low first, don't we? If you want to experience the fullness of the gospel, you need to be rattled at your core. When it comes to who we are in light of God's holiness, in light of His splendor, we need to be brought low in light of our sinfulness in acknowledging our need for a Savior. Right? That's the precise method of the catechism, right? Sin. We start with our guilt. A lot of people don't like that. But we're brought low first. Why? So we could see the glory of the grace, the splendor of the salvation. And see, when we do this in faith, we know we will hear the voice of the Lord, as Ezekiel does. Because notice how once the Son of Man is brought low, it's then that the Lord speaks to him. Note that in verses 1 and 2. Son of Man, God says, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. So it's not only the glory of God that brings him low, it's the glory of God that lifts him up. places him back on his feet. 
And that's the reality for us. For those in Christ Jesus, the overwhelming glory of our great God is not left without that reassuring word. And so really, you could say that's the prerequisite, not just of any official man called to ministry. That's the official, or that's the prerequisite for any believer. To be brought low so that God can bring you back up. And I think this especially applies to the minister. As someone ordained by God to to speak the word of the Lord, I need to be brought low first in my study, in my preparation. Believe me, it happens in many senses throughout the week. There are many times when, when I am about to come up to this pulpit, and not just here because there's more people in this church than in mine, but because of what it is that's going on right now. Because the glory of the Lord that is being revealed is a serious, serious thing. What am I doing here? Who, who am I to proclaim this to you folks tonight? I have that. I think all pastors should have that in some sense. But see, it's then that we're reminded of the cross. We're reminded of the promises of God. We're reminded of the glory revealed in Scripture, that it is God who raises up men like me. And see, the blessing in this is absolutely astounding, congregation. It's astounding for us all. It's a reminder that it's not about us. This prerequisite has implications for the entire body of Christ. We are all brought low. We are all brought back up in order to see the glory of God. And so don't forget that, saints. Do not forget that when you enter this place, when you behold the glory, when the Scriptures are open in the way that they are being now, when you proclaim God and confess in the Apostles' Creed, when you sing songs... That's what's going on. You're brought low and you're brought back up. Don't just presume you'll hear God speak without this happening first. We need to be humble. But that's not the only thing that we can learn from this divine commissioning this evening. Secondly, notice the bright and rosy prospect here of Ezekiel's calling from God. Here he is, the prophet, the priest, exiled in Babylon in a foreign land under wicked rulers. He is unable to worship in the temple. And what does God tell him? He expressly tells the prophet that his message will not be heard. Now think about that. He's sent to a rebellious people. That's not exactly the perfect beginner church, is it? For him to sort of get his feet underneath him you think of it in our day, it would be like you know, a new minister hearing specific information about a church where he was considering a call, and he talks to the pastor, and the pastor's like, you know what, I've got to be honest. The congregation there is hard-hearted, disillusioned, cynical, bitter. The kids don't listen, and the parents don't care. They think the pastor should be in poverty. Come to think of it, I think the majority of them don't even believe in salvation through Christ alone. It's not the most glowing report, is it? In essence, what's going on here, 
That's the divine report he receives from God, too, not just another pastor who can get it wrong. Here the prophet is called to the house of Israel, and yet they're the ones acting as what? As pagans. In verse 3, God tells him, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. See how painstakingly rebellious this is. This is not just a, an offshoot. This is not just a sect, a, a group of the, of the people. This is the whole of it. This is a multi-generational problem of rebellion. It's part of who they are. In essence, they're no different than the world. And yet, what do we see? We see that the Lord sends Ezekiel anyways, doesn't he? Why? Because of his mercy. Because of his promise to his people. And so the reality at hand here, that God is the one who's already told him who will not listen, but, but that, see, that has nothing to do with the calling, does it? No, Ezekiel is to prophesy regardless. Despite the opposition, whether people listen or don't, that doesn't matter. In fact, the divine commissioning here is so imperative that, that God says it more than once. Notice in verse three or 7, rather, what does he say? You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. He's repeating it. Now, I think that God said this to Ezekiel more than once because Ezekiel probably needed to hear it more than once. Okay, God, that's what you want me to do for real? It'd be very easy for him to despair, wouldn't it? What's the point? That's something that pastors, we face that. Despair, lack of response. It's rebellion. Despite how in, in cultures in which we live, people who know the word, who've heard the gospel before, yet who want nothing to do with it, who rebel. And we can look to the empty pews. And think that all is lost. God is giving me fruitless work here. All of these hard-hearted people around me. People who should know better, right? People, as I said, who've been raised in church. Who want nothing to do with her anymore. It's easy to despair. It's easy to say, Lord, this calling, it's not worth it. I'm done. And so you get that. You get that a lot today. Burnout. Perhaps that's a reason why, a horrible reason why. But see, the reality is, here in our text, that sort of response or lack of a response has nothing to do with the calling set before Ezekiel, does it? It doesn't warrant his rejecting it. And that's because we are to see the work of God as God himself sees it. We gain our strength as pastors. We gain our strength as denomination, as federation of churches, as congregations who repeatedly point to the gospel through the preaching because of the glory of the one that we behold. So I encourage you again this evening, congregation, to pray that your pastor would see that. Pray that, that Reverend Barnes, despite the, the earthly challenge of impenitent ears, 
somebody else that you know, maybe he's in contact with has not, wants nothing to do with the gospel. I've heard it before. You don't have to continue. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to hear it. Pray that he would stay focused on the calling of the glory of the promises. Because see, if he loses sight of that, you lose sight of that calling. And if you lose sight of your calling, then the temptation is to look elsewhere. Now that's another thing we discover here in our text tonight. Ezekiel faced thirdly incredible pressure in his ministry here. Given the setting in which he lived and the the people to whom he was called to, to serve, to speak amongst, Ezekiel faced the enormous pressure to either fail to bring that message or to do something just as worse, and that's to change it, to alter it. We would say perhaps to water it down. See, what we discover in reading the book of Ezekiel as a whole is that it is a message primarily, though not entirely, primarily of judgment. This book is basically the prophet of God sent to God's people to proclaim judgment to them. And that makes sense given the the place in redemptive history. God's people were sent in exile, scattered, not at home, not in the promised land. Why? Because of their covenant disobedience. And so think about the temptation in that setting, right? As it is for the church today to alter the message. Judgment? No. No, God is a loving God. Holiness? Well, yeah, I believe we're holy. Again, what does verse 7 call us to see? God tells the prophet to speak his words, not, not Ezekiel's own edible version. No, he says, speak my words. And that means that it is our duty to speak God's words, whatever they may be. That means that you and I, that I as a pastor, we are, as a church, we are not given the luxury of trying to determine, well, th- this portion of Scripture we don't want to proclaim. This part is preachable while this one isn't. Now, you can make the argument, right? You're not going to preach Song of Solomon's in uh, you know, eight-year-old Sunday school. The time and a place for those sorts of things. But it's good for us as churches to spend time in places of judgment such as Ezekiel. Places where it's a little more difficult for us to break through and and see what is this this doing here? What is God teaching us? How How are we seeing God's wrath and mercy? How are we seeing Jesus Christ in this text? How are we seeing the covenant God of history? And I think that's why as a federation of churches we preach catechism sermons. It's for our blessing, I think, in this regard. It's a way, honestly, for us to avoid right feel-good messages. A lot of people, when looking for churches today, they'll look for that, right? They, it's almost they have tunnel vision looking for a place to regularly worship as to, well, I, I feel good walking away. 
as if the only purpose of the sermon is to make us feel inspired and good about ourselves. Now, the, the reality is, is if we preach faithfully from God's Word, we should feel good about our Savior, first and foremost, and in Him feel good. It's not a false dichotomy. But that's, that's a, a pressure that we face today. There's no doubt about it. The mentality today is, is that we need to feel good about myself. A pastor saying a, a harsh word to the congregation, whew. There's no doubt the church faces this enormous pressure. All around us today, we hear that, that Jesus is my friend. He is my example. But repentance and faith, that's Old Testament talk. The doctrine of eternal punishment of the wicked, let's not talk about that. We, shouldn't, we should refrain from speaking about Christian discipline because people aren't going to want to come to a church that, it, that is hypocritical in their approach to church discipline. Now, it shows, of course, uh, an intense misjudgment of what it is we do. But see, our job is not to make people feel good about themselves. Our job, both for us sitting here tonight and for those that don't know Christ who need to come here, we need to show them what? The glory of God. The worship that's due His name tonight. That's what Ezekiel does here. And that's what Ezekiel is given, right? In this sense, in verse 10, it's what? We read that the scroll has written on it words of lamentations and mourning and woe. Not exactly the type of message that would go, you know, fly well today. And when you read the entirety of the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel was faithful to that calling. He proclaimed words of lamentation, of mourning, of woe. If you don't turn from your sin, you are dead in your trespasses. If you look to your own strength, to the own promises of yourself, and not the promises of our covenant Lord, then you will be in bondage. That's the nature of his calling. That is his calling. It's his job to proclaim the message regardless of what it is. One of the constant reminders that we were given throughout our time in seminary is that as ministers, we serve fundamentally as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. If you had to boil down one word for what a pastor should be, it should be the word ambassador. And what that entails is that we proclaim a message that is not our own. Now, of course, like right now, this is my own voice speaking. This is my presentation. I'm sure you, you see the difference between myself and Reverend Barnes. But, but regardless of who it is commissioned by God to stand up here tonight and proclaim that, we know it's the voice of the Lord when it is faithful to God's Word. It's the same exact message. The voice of God. In ancient times, if a foreign king didn't like the message, he did what? He would kill the messenger. The messengers, of course, who were sent, they knew this. But that's the association. Of course, today we, we say what? Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. And we, we say that, right, when we're the bearer of bad news. It's really just a way, another way of us saying, well, well, hey, I don't like the message that I'm giving, but here it is. Don't shoot the messenger. 
That's not what being an ambassador of Christ is, though. Because it's, an ambassador of Christ isn't one who just gives the message. He also agrees with it 100%. He acknowledges its validity, its truth. He knows that, that the voice that is being said is the voice of the Lord, even if that means the messenger himself is killed. Being an ambassador of Christ, brothers and sisters, essentially means being willing to give your life for that message. And we are called to be ambassadors in this sense whenever we reveal and proclaim God's glory as shown in Scripture. And we have to buy into it. I have to buy into it. You all have to buy into it. The elders have to buy into it. And you have to be convicted of that. We must have faith that God's Word truly, accurately, powerfully speaks to the world of sin that we live in. We must trust that God knows what is best for us and our children. We must trust that even the difficult things of Scripture that we're like, hmm, do I believe that or not? Did God really say? We submit to that. We need to be reminded of this, don't we? Ezekiel did. In verse 8, God again speaks to him, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And see, I think that shows us that that same warning that, that, that Ezekiel is to give to the nation of Israel is something that he himself has to consider. Those who are called by God to proclaim the message must also come in faith and repentance. So as a church that has been entrusted with that full counsel of God, to proclaim it, to hear it, to live it out, we too need to be cautious with this. Don't think for a second that you or I are excluded from the message that we call to the nations around us of repent and believe. Don't think for a second that the judgment that's placed upon the covenant Israelites is any different than if we philander with the world. We act like pagans because I'm saved and I could do what I want. There's judgment here. We're called to repent and believe just as much as the lost person who laughs and scoffs at even the idea of what it is I am saying to you right now. Where does judgment begin? It begins at the house of the Lord. And when it comes to the voice of the Lord, it's something that you and I need to hear. And so we've considered the prerequisite for this calling of Ezekiel. We've considered the prospect as well as the pressure of this priest's calling. But there's one other thing that our text tonight teaches us. Because along with the bitter message of judgment that Ezekiel is commissioned to bring to this rebellious house comes also a sweet reminder of the privilege that this office brings. In chapter 3, verse 3, what do we read? God speaks to Ezekiel saying this, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey. 
in sweetness. Now think about that. Ingesting a scroll could not have been the most experience for Ezekiel, but because of the one he was receiving it from, it was what? It was sweet. One preacher says, so sweet was the message itself that this was something the prophet could not possibly betray by unfaithfulness. This message must be so precious to us that we could never compromise it. We could never water it down in any way. Well, because people won't accept it. A few years ago, I read an article in the news that claimed that something like 75% of the honey that's out there is, is not pure honey. It's, it's a nutrition-void, watered-down version of it. I'm sure some honey aficionado had a riot uncovering this. But it's once you know what pure honey is, what it tastes like, you can't go back. I knew a family growing up who had this with Heinz ketchup, of all things. They could tell if a restaurant had the Heinz 57 bottle but put the knockoff brand in it. Once they knew what it was, they couldn't go back. Such is the case with the unadulterated message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, congregation. Once you've received it in faith, you will never go back. You can't. You can never say what it isn't. You can't pass off something that that tastes or looks a little bit like it, but doesn't have the same essence. And how often is that the case today when it comes to the the proclamation of the gospel itself? If you turn on the television today, you hear a sermon on the radio that, that isn't focused on the glory of God, but is focused on what? On the self. Boy, is that prevalent. How often do you hear that? It sounds similar. Words are used that, that you hear in a gospel sermon. Words like forgiveness. Words like love. Words like cross. Resurrection. Wow, this, this sounds good. But where's the glory of God in it? God's glory and purpose are never even mentioned. See, those who truly know Christ can see that. They can see straight through it. Why? Because they've tasted the gospel before. They know what it is. They've experienced it. They've lived it. And that's a privilege, congregation. That's the privilege that Ezekiel has here. Not only had the prophet's eyes been opened to see this miraculously strange vision in chapter 1, not only does he hear the voice of the Lord tell him to hear his voice, to get up on his feet with a message that he's given to give, but he also tastes the glory of God. He tastes the mercy of God. And the same word, that he was commissioned to speak to this unrelenting and rebellious nation. Words of judgment. That's what tasted sweet to him. Think about that. That is why today we likewise taste and see that the Lord is good, right? When we celebrate the sacrament of communion. The similarities, I think, between our text this evening and the form of reading and when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is very similar. It's very obvious. 
right? When we come before the table, there's a warning of judgment, isn't there? We acknowledge that there is judgment at this table for those who openly reject the Savior of that table. Those who come unworthily eat and drink damnation unto themselves. We openly affirm If you come like Israel, rejecting God, you expect judgment. Scripture's clear on that. We don't in any sense water that down. We don't invite anybody to the table regardless of their beliefs. Oh, you believe that Jesus existed, but yeah, yeah, come. No. There's judgment there. And yet, along with that warning of judgment, of course, comes the message of grace to those who humbly come before Him. Yes, there is language that brings us low when you and I come in faith to the table. But there is also language in the celebration of the sacrament that lifts us up. Again, when we read in the preparatory form, we read things, I'll just quote a portion, all then who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who earnestly desire to lead a godly life, ought to accept the invitation given. And come with gladness to the table of the Lord. We're lifted up. Right? Let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. We're raised with the one who is raised in the heavenlies, as Hebrews says. Our souls united with him. And that is a privilege, saints, that tastes wonderfully sweet. Why does it taste so sweet? Because the judgment, the same judgment that we hear Ezekiel proclaim, the same judgment when we read the form, the judgment that you and I were due is taken away completely. This meal tastes so sweet because God did not forget His covenant faithfulness to us. Because God has brought us out out of our bondage. He's taken us home. He's given us a place to worship again. A place to gather with God's people. All of these things. Powerful language of the privilege that you and I have. Do you see it as such? Do you experience the sweetness of God's reassuring word in moments of darkness in your life? There's sweetness there. And why is it sweet? Again, because it's the work of God, not our work. Because it's His salvation through His Son. That is what we proclaim today. That is what we will refuse to change. Not one bit. You have this privilege through Jesus Christ, through faith. Do you use it? Every time you enter this place, this sanctuary, you have the opportunity to listen, to behold the glory of the Lord. Right? I, I know for when I used to be in the pews, it's hard sometimes. The moment you start not listening is when God's glory is out the window, right? We have 
opportunity to hear again and again the sweetness of the Holy Gospel. And the blessing is, is once we've heard it, once we've seen it, once we've tasted it in the sacrament, there's no going back, is there? Praise be to God for this gift that we not only get to experience in part here, but we will experience in full in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege and what a blessing it is to be reminded of the sweetness of your grace, of your sovereign mercy in bringing us back to you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take hold and take seriously the words of judgment. If we are indeed living no differently than the world around us, if we are in exile from you and it's because we don't want to be in your presence, Lord, that, that's something that was very clear in exile. Israelites would long for the temple insofar as what it meant for them nationally or culturally, but not spiritually. And so, Lord, we pray that you would accuse the conscience of anyone here, anyone listening on the radio tonight, uh, of someone who, who desires to have your benefits but rejects your, your words of judgment, that they would be brought low and that you would bring them up again as you did with Ezekiel. You would stand them on their feet and that they would taste the glory of God in the same way. Lord, give that to all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.